Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume in September of 2021 here in our home city of New York, and we hope you can make it. But that's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And if you've been watching SALT Talks over the past 18 months since we started the series, you know that uh, the crypto or digital asset space is an area that we're keenly interested in. And I've had a lot of the uh, top minds in the space here on the SALT Talk series, uh, but we're happy to tick another one off the list here with the great Nick Carter. Uh, Nick is a general partner at Castle Island Ventures, a Cambridge, Massachusetts-based venture firm investing in startups in the public blockchain industry. He's also the co-founder of CoinMetrics, which is a great blockchain analytics firm. Uh, previously, he served as a crypto asset analyst at Fidelity Investments. He holds a master's in finance from the University of Edinburgh uh, and a bachelor's in philosophy from the University of St. Andrews as a Somebody with a Scottish heritage, I, I very much appreciate your academic background, Nick. But uh, hosting today's talk is Brett Messing, who is the President and Chief Operating Officer here at Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm with significant exposure, I might add, to uh, Bitcoin and potentially uh, other investments in the crypto digital asset space coming down the pike. Uh, but with that, I'll turn it over to Brett for the interview. Uh, thank you, John. Nick, it's great to have you here. Um, I'm a big fan of your stuff. I, I think you, you've done a, a real service to the Bitcoin community, particularly in addressing concerns around the, the, the energy issue. I do want to timestamp this because um, it, it's June 22nd. And eight days ago, I returned from a silent meditation retreat, actually with Ross Stevens of NIDIG. And I came back to find Bitcoin at 41,000. And today it traded as low as 28,600, although it's higher. Um, and there's a lot of China news. And so I think we should start there. So, you know, fortunately, this isn't a family show. So, Nick, what the fuck's going on in China? <laughs> I think we're all wondering that right now. Um, I would say there's like several different intertwined threads in China right now. So one is the hash rate transition. That's an entire topic. Uh, it's something I've spent a huge amount of time trying to understand, talking to Chinese miners that are relocating. Uh, that's one thing that's certainly affecting the price in a couple of ways we can get into. The second is this continued crackdown on, you know, the ability of, uh, you know, regular Chinese folks to get exposure to crypto. And those channels are being constricted and closed off. Uh, and, you know, that's related, I would say, to the mining activity. Um, but that's, you know, a distinct phenomenon. Uh, so those those are kind of two really dramatic moves happening at the same time in China. Happy to start with either. Uh, but yeah, I mean, China is, is basically the most important, you know, sort of nexus in the market right now. Uh, I want to hit both. I, 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 before we do, I, I, I want to put it in a broader context and I, or I want to get your reaction to something. It seems to me that people in Bitcoin, probably myself included, think that everyone is solely focused on Bitcoin. And that, that China is out to get to Bitcoin. So there's a the Politburo is getting together and all they're talking about is Bitcoin. It seems to me what's going on is a broader attack on tech and fintech, right? So we can go back to 
the Alibaba IPO getting pulled, which was as someone who worked at Goldman and Equity Capital Markets, a remarkable mm -hmm. event, right, 48 hours before pricing. And by the way, I would point out that Alibaba is not as big as Bitcoin market cap wise, but it's not that far away. And if it had gone public and traded up, it probably would be about the same size as the market cap of Bitcoin is presently. Yeah. Um, we haven't seen Jack Ma. The CEO of TikTok was forced to step down. There was another tech billionaire that, you know, I guess has, has you know, was had his wrist slapped last week. I don't remember the guy's name. So this feels like a part of that mosaic and not a Bitcoin attack. I guess I like your reaction to that. And then let's then we'll jump into the minor discussion. Yeah, I mean, China is the worst place in the world to be a tech billionaire. You know, it's it's a very perilous occupation, right? Um, to be a tech founder in China, uh, it seems that, you know, given the uh, local uh, appreciation or lack thereof for property rights, there's kind of a cap on how large you can take a tech company until uh, it, you know if you start to get harassed by the government or uh, it, you know it gets forcibly broken up or nationalized in a certain way, uh, and so. It's just a tough place to be a tech founder. I think you're absolutely right to draw a connection between the, uh, um, you know, the crackdowns on Bitcoin exchange and mining, and you know, Alipay. Uh, it seems to me that ultimately a big part of the motivation for this is the creation of the DCEP, you know, China's digital currency network, effectively, which um, would you know basically seize power over you know, the transactional financial sector from the private sector, from, you know, these, these intermediaries like Alipay and WeChat and constant, you know, consolidate that power uh, with the state. Uh, and so it's not that surprised to me to see, you know, the pendulum swing back in the other day, you know, direction towards, uh, you know, centralized system like the DCEP, uh, especially as these, you know, kind of private sector entities had, you know, gained so much traction and we're intermediating such a large share of the payment space. Uh, so that crackdown on, on Alipay, you know, sort of makes sense in that context. We're seeing the DCEP, you know, the CCP is heavily investing in the DCEP. Uh, they're rolling out uh, ATMs to connect, you know, physical cash to the digital cash product. Uh, and we can certainly talk about, uh, you know, the interplay with Bitcoin there. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you're, you're right. This is definitely part of sort of a broader trend to, you know, sort of reconsolidate power. So um, let's talk about the mining. So about, I guess it's a month ago or so, the central party sort of said no Bitcoin mining. There was a set, there've been a bunch of Bitcoin mining bans for those of us that are relatively new compared to you. And no one was sure what it meant. And, and we saw a bunch of miners leave the coal regions, right? And I think there was a reaction, okay, okay, well, this has to do with clean air. Um, this past weekend, we've seen a province where it's all sort of hydro and we've seen massive shutdown, you know, and it, it, this is sort of, it, it, it's real. It's not just, you know, a proclamation. I'd also add, and, and maybe you can speak to this, I've tracked the, the prices of mining equipment. Um, and a month ago, I would say they were soft. Um, now, obviously the price of Bitcoin is down a lot, but the price of the mining gear while not yet at what I would characterize distress levels, is down a lot. Um, what does it all mean? I'm gonna give you a couple of different vectors to go at it. One is for Bitcoin security, right? Is there anything mm -hmm. to worry about? Um, the environmental issues, right, which have, are now sort of 
front and center. And then uh, why don't we just start with those two? Yeah, so security and uh, climate. So the the Chinese miner situation is the most dramatic hash power shift since industrial mining has existed in 2013. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's really worth understanding why so much mining capacity ended up located in China in the first place. So China is the world's capital of basically stranded energy. So energy that cannot be brought to market for whatever reason. Uh, and this is because typically because of transmission line losses. So energy doesn't travel well. So if you're generating a lot of cheap energy you know, in one place and you want to transport a thousand miles to a population center where it'd be consumed, you're going to experience significant losses. It's not going to be worth it to do that. Uh, and so in 2016, China was curtailing on the order of 100 terawatt hours of solar, wind, and hydro energy. And you know, effectively, that's the perfect energy source to mine Bitcoin because Bitcoin doesn't care where it's mined. And so because China had massively overbuilt their hydro, wind, solar resources, and they also had very abundant coal resources in the northern provinces, that's why Bitcoin mining ended up dramatically located in China. And that's why China had this kind of 70% market share of mining for the longest time. Uh, and so that was good and bad. Good because two of those big provinces where Bitcoin is mined were Sichuan and Yunnan, which are 90% hydro. But then the other two provinces where Bitcoin is you know, significantly mined in China are Inner Mongolia and Xinjiang. And those are 60, 70% coal with the remainder being wind and solar. Uh, and so what happened was the Bitcoin miners would uh, kind of seesaw from the northern, uh, mostly coal-powered pro provinces in the dry season to the southern uh, hydro-powered provinces in the wet season. Right now, it's the wet season. So mining would typically be occurring in Sichuan and Yunnan for the most part. Uh, but you know what actually happened and what was interesting is that China built out over the last decade this high-voltage transmission grid uh, to basically turn their very fragmented uh, multiple energy grids into a more unified whole to bring the, this curtailed energy to market uh, in the population centers on the south of China and the east coast of China, which is where the big energy load is. And so that's kind of important context to understand, uh, you know, something that might well be motivating uh, this crackdown on mining uh, is not simply this desire to marginalize Bitcoin and stem capital outflows and to promote their own digital currency, but also the very uh, so, you know, sort of pedestrian fact that their grid is just working better and there's less uh, stranded energy for miners to exploit. Uh, and so that's something that hasn't been covered as much in the discourse is just you know, changing industrial policy uh, in China, affecting their tolerance for miners you know, drawing uh, drawing on these stranded energy assets. So from a climate perspective, it's really going to depend where that hash rate ends up going. And we're talking about 50 to 60% of Bitcoin's network hash, uh, something on the order of I mean, probably 40. I mean, it's interjecting. So do you think that all of it leaves or, you know, is there black market mining? So, you know, a year out or so, let's assume it's 50 to 60% of the hash rate or computing power is in, is in China you know, where do you think we're headed? I think all of the industrial mining, the large scale, uh, 100 megawatt plus mining farms leave China. They're very easy to kind of triangulate and locate. And uh, the crackdowns we've seen, the first province to go was Inner Mongolia. They really cracked down at the province level with raids. 
um, they were able to effectively identify all of the major players. So uh, I think you will see small scale operations for sure. It's easy to run an ASIC or two uh, with cheap power, but uh, I believe that all the industrial mining capacity based on the signals we're getting from China right now, and based on what I'm hearing from miners on the ground, will leave China within six months. Got it. And uh, in, uh, I don't know when this is going to air, but in Sichuan, um, it looks like there's a, effectively a one month deadline from this week uh, for miners to shutter their operations. So it's likely that we're going to see the Bitcoin hash rate decline by another 20, 30%. Uh, because that's where most miners should be operational right now. And so, where do, where would you think it would go? I mean, I guess if you put your your yourself in the shoes of a miner, where would you want to go? So, if I were a miner, I would have a renewed respect for political stability and uh, you know the <laughs> sanctioning of the protection and respect of my property rights, um, and you know getting away from capriciousness uh, on the part of the energy authorities. So it's no surprise that the number one destination for miners is the good old USA, where we have the second most capacious grid in the world. It's a federal system, so the states have different policies. Some are favorable, some are less favorable. And indeed, we're seeing Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, pitched Bitmain clients at a, a conference in Chengdu last week, saying, yeah, come to Texas, we have the capacity. And it's true. Texas actually does have the capacity to absorb um, you know, the share of Bitcoin miners that are leaving the network. Uh, their grid instability issues are kind of an ancillary issue, but they do, generally speaking, uh, not at peak times, but most of the time, Texas does have the capacity to absorb this. Uh, so the USA would be my first choice. There's not a ton of actual hosting capacity available in the US right now that's going to take six to nine months to build. So there might actually be this fallow period where miners are just looking for a home. They're actually not able to onshore their, their, their hash rate um, leaving the U.S. aside, the other big destinations would be Russia and Kazakhstan and other parts of Central Asia. Those are less regulated, so you can bring an operation to bear more quickly. Um, they have relatively cheap power. Uh, unfortunately, in Kazakhstan, it's mostly coal. In Russia, you do have other uh, renewables. You've got hydro. Um, you know, so those are some of the destinations I've heard kicked around. I've also heard uh, Southeast Asia kicked around as a possible destination, but. The truth is we're just not going to know for a while. And there's going to be a period of uncertainty and probably depressed hash rate as these miners desperately look to actually find places to house their machines. So do you think Bitcoin will end up being, mining will be greener or less green? Just again, you know, based on the incentives and available places to go for miners. It's a good question. If So the Chinese story was complex because... You had half of the year mining at an extremely low carbon intensity, effectively zero, with waste uh, water running out of these dams that were already built. Uh, so there was no additional uh, you know, contribution to emissions by mining with that water that was going to run through the river, run through the dam anyway. And then the other half of the year, you're mining with coal from Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia. Uh, and so you know, your emissions factor, your carbon intensity is fluctuating dramatically based on the season. Um, and so, you know, you're still getting, because coal is by far the dirtiest uh, form of thermal energy, you're getting a relatively high emissions factor. Um, if you onshored all that hash rate to the U.S., the U.S. grid has de-emphasized coal in the last decade, and it's much more natural gas focused. And depending on the state, you have plenty of renewables too. Um, that would probably be better overall for Bitcoin's emissions factor. Um, 
If you're able to identify other hydro or renewable sources in Northern Europe and Russia, it is going to improve uh, the, the carbon outlay of the Bitcoin system. Uh, if, however, all these miners just end up being mined with coal in Kazakhstan, it's going to be no better and possibly worse. So it's going to be a matter of actually monitoring where these machines are going, seeing if the pools are willing or the miners themselves are willing to contribute data regarding their energy mix. Uh, and that's something I'm definitely optimistic about because miners have begun to understand that it's totally worth it to provide disclosure around this stuff. Because if you don't disclose, then people just assume the worst. And so miners have begun to do this calculus where they realize, oh, if we do have you know 50% renewables as part of our energy mix, we should actually tell people about that. Uh, so hopefully this historically very opaque mining space becomes more transparent in the next year much more US-based. I'm sure we're going to see that regardless. Uh, you know, Hopefully more actually publicly traded companies and then they'll be doing disclosure anyway. Uh, so I'm very optimistic about the informational environment around Bitcoin mining, but I can't actually guarantee that it will become greener, especially because China is sort of unnecessarily shutting down mining in the hydro-rich provinces, which seems you know, pretty excessive. Um, Nick, What's like approximately the total revenues for the mining industry just globally, broadly in a year? Uh, current prices would be around $20 billion from Bitcoin. Okay, so we have a, a $10 billion business called approximately half of it quasi up for grabs, right? Not completely, right? Do you see any large U.S. companies or, you know, looking at this opportunity and, and is it a natural fit for someone like Microsoft, Verizon, General Electric, Honeywell, Tesla, um, you know, where they have existing infrastructure um, that they could probably get this going relatively quickly? The first one I would identify would be Tesla SolarCity because there it's totally viable to mine with a combo of wind and solar in conjunction with maybe a battery backstop or maybe a grid backstop. And that's going to give you, at current levelized cost of energy, that's going to give you energy at three, four cents a kilowatt hour. You're going to be profitable at that rate. And I could totally see them creating a consumer product around that, around hosted mining that people could buy into. Um, so any large um, you know, solar producer distributor that also maybe has access to some wind assets, solar alone doesn't work because it has a low capacity factor. If you pair it with wind, you get an uncorrelated um, kind of distribution profile in terms of when the energy is being created. So that portfolio of assets tends to work. And there are parts of the U.S. where solar and wind together work well, uh, northern Texas, for instance. That would be one you know, obvious you know, case. A lot of people have pointed this out to Elon. You, know, you can actually do something about uh, the climate impact of Bitcoin if you rolled out a product like that. Um, other publicly traded companies that have some relevance to mining would be uh, data centers. Uh, you know, Amazon, Google um, operate huge data centers. When they have downtime uh, with their GPUs, they could easily mine Ethereum, which is GPU mineable. My suspicion is that they may actually already be doing this. Uh, so at times of low load on those GPUs, they can turn that economically inert resource into something that is economically generative. Um, that's not a Bitcoin story. That's more mining GPU mineable assets. Uh, but I think there will always be, uh, you know, things like that. Whether it's, um, you know, Ethereum or you know, Filecoin or Chia, you could also, you know, use hardware uh, to mine those. Um, so that's one, you know, very addressable thing. Lastly, 
the oil majors, um, you know, these oil companies that have enormous um, gas or, you know, oil extraction wells where they're producing significant quantities of natural gas, which, um, you know, they're flaring off in many cases because it's not economical to bring that gas to market. There's this enormous segment out there now. Uh, I call it pipe to crypto, effectively flared gas mining. Uh, you know, you, you get a shipping container full of Bitcoin ASICs, um, you know, you pair it with a generator that takes natural gas inputs and you can effectively monetize the stranded resource, which you'd otherwise be flaring off. And that's completely not neutral from a climate perspective. So I've been paying attention to the earnings of the oil companies, expecting them to say, yeah, we're experimenting with flared gas mining uh, as a way to monetize this resource that they're otherwise wasting. So far, they haven't said anything about it. And I'm actually pretty surprised that they haven't. I'm going to put on my Bitcoin PR hat and say, I'd be fine if they don't. Okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, I can see the headlines. I'm not sure that would be particularly helpful. Um, so, so this weekend, as I was watching this sort of event on Twitter, uh, you know, um, you know, there was, there was video of, of, you know, mining equipment being unplugged, right. As, as this, the beginning of this implementation, I wasn't aware until you said it's, that there's a 30 day cutoff for all this mining to come out of this, this hydro rich reason region. I was incredibly bullish and, and I, and look, I think it's going to be the biggest event of the year because we're going to kill the attack vector, you know, China controls Bitcoin. I have to say, and I imagine others, I don't think I, and I have my, my brain around that. I don't really understand what came out yesterday, right? Which is the closing off of the on-ramps, how that relates to what happened previously and what that really, like, are we going to see Chinese citizens unable to buy? Or are we going to see forced selling? Yeah, I know it's early, right? We're 24 hours after they convened a meeting. Uh, but I, I'd love your perspective on the sort of the second leg uh, which did cause this drop uh, below 30,000, even though we've recovered since then. Yeah, I mean, I think your analysis of the mining situation is spot on. Um, eliminating Bitcoin's exposure to the whims of the Chinese Communist Party is obviously a good thing. Uh, just broadening our geographic footprint, regardless of which country it's you know, disproportionately based in, is obviously a good thing. Um, I don't want 70% of Bitcoin's hash power to be in any single jurisdiction. Uh, and so whether that threat was real or imagined, it's something that we can effectively mitigate. Um, and so this seems like a stroke of luck that the CCP or that China would you know, really crack down harshly on Chinese mining and its borders, forcing it abroad, forcing it to become more dispersed into a bunch of different geographies. Regarding the second leg down, I do think that's one of the more critical features of this because we know there's a Chinese retail bid in these markets. Um, you know, that's where a significant portion of the capital comes from. Uh, and if you choke off that access, you're going to eliminate a significant inflow into the markets. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not just through the exchanges, Huobi and OKCoin, the mainland onshore exchanges. That's also through RMB Tether OTC desks uh, that are more informal. Uh, and it appears that. China is also targeting those. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, there's a few sources through which capital can flow out of China into crypto, thus making it mobile and, uh, you know, allowing people to ultimately invade uh, those capital controls. Um, it looks like China is, you know, taking an incredibly aggressive stance towards that now. 
Uh, and from the from what we've seen, and it's still sort of unclear what's happening, uh, they seem to really be trying to choke that off. Um, what I'm looking to is, are the executives at OKCoin and Huobi going to uh, continue to be harassed uh, by the government? We know that they've been detained in the past 12 months for kind of a month or two at a time. And actually the market has sold off when, the, when those events occurred uh, because people figured that you know, there was a risk that those exchanges would be nationalized or you know, the holders would be expropriated in some way. Uh, and so that's what I'm looking to. Do those exchanges which have uh, existed under the watchful eye of the CCP and sort of been tolerated by them, will they continue uh, to you know, be allowed to operate? Um, but my guess is, is that there will be some additional regulation or some additional attempt to sort of control the funds in and out uh, because you know, the Chinese government has rightly uh, realized, uh, you know, correctly realized that uh, you know, the crypto markets are a means to offshore wealth from the country. Uh, and so it's just one of those ways um, that, their, that their capital account was, uh, was being drained uh, and sort of looks like they were you know, finally taking it seriously as a threat. So, right, historically, when you ban things, it, it doesn't work, right? Prohibition, you know, drugs, but that's, China's different, right? It, it, it's essentially an autocracy. So what I hear you saying is this is a real negative that we're going to, we're going to, you know, because I, I do want to touch upon just this, the, the demand supply dynamics in the marketplace. What I hear you saying is, is that, um, you know, we lost Grayscale as a buyer right in January when the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust traded a discount, which has persisted, that we may be looking at another source of buying that will disappear. And it, I mean, is that right? And can you quantify that? Um, yeah, correct. That would be the conclusion I would draw is that there's another inflow which is being effectively cut off. Um, and I would look at, for instance, Tether creation, which is, you know, we know Tether is a very popular instrument uh, in those Asian markets uh, as a uh, bridge currency, basically to get access to crypto in general. Uh, and a lot of those mainland trades are brokered against Tether directly. Uh, and so if you see that rate of creation slowing down, that sort of implies a waning appetite or a, lot, you know, a loss of ability uh, to get access to crypto. Um, but I'd also look at um, the reserves being held by OKCoin and Huobi, which there's a bunch of chain analysis companies that have um, triangulated those. Um, I haven't looked this time, but uh, during those previous events when the executives were being detained, you could see there's an immediate outflow from those reserves as depositors of those exchanges started to fear that uh, you know the exchanges would be. Um, you know, closed up and it would be impossible to redeem their funds. Uh, so those would be kind of the two key indicators I'd be looking at. Okay, great. Um, I, I want to touch on the, the energy debate, which, um, you know, I think has contributed to Bitcoin's decline, you know, from, you know, higher prices following the Coinbase IPO. Um, as there's been this heightened ESG focus, you know, which, which is just a real thing in the U.S. And, you know, I think it has resulted in some institutional investors, you know, pressing pause. And, and you've been out front and I think done a really fantastic job in sort of, you know, making the case. I do want to raise 
an issue that I, I have a quarrel with broadly with the Bitcoin community and get your reaction to about the arguments that I think are being made. Firstly, I'm, I'm not particularly sympathetic to the, it's my energy, I can use it however I want, right? Because, you know, you can, you buy land, we restrict how you can, you know, what you can build. Uh, you buy booze, you can't give it to kids, you can't drive with it. So, you know, we restrict the uses of private property. Um, so while I, you know, while I have a lib libertarian bent, that, that argument doesn't resonate with me. I hear sort of two conflicting arguments on the energy issue. I hear on the one hand, well, it's not that much, right? It's, it's the amount of energy used to burn for Christmas trees. It's the amount of energy for blow dryers. It's the amount of energy for YouTube. I, I don't know if any of those stats are correct, but you do hear, right, other framing of energy use. The idea being, I saw a stat recently, it's only one or 2% of, of waste energy in the US. Again, trying to make it seem like it's not that big a number. But then on the other hand, we have this, uh, this research piece by Square and Arc that says that you know, Bitcoin is gonna really facilitate and you know, renewables in the United States and, and globally. And those two arguments seem inconsistent because if it's small, how can it matter right, in furthering right. renewable energy. And by the way, it may just be the answer is different people making different arguments. And, and one of the best things about Bitcoin is that we're all not sitting in a room, you know, um, but I like your reaction to that um, just generally. Yeah, it's interesting because when I've uh, written about Bitcoin energy, a lot of Bitcoiners will, you know, ask me to, to sort of not apologize for it and to be defiant and say, you know, it's our energy, we can do with it what we want. And, you know, it's uh, a function of the grid and individual consumers of that grid energy should never be apologetic for using it, something that's been duly paid for. But I do think it's important to try and think about how Bitcoin could be rendered, um, you know, more carbon neutral over time. Uh, and, and, you know, that's been a focus in my research over the last few months. Um, I would agree probably that uh, Bitcoin is not sort of sufficiently material as a buyer of energy to really move the needle from an environmental perspective. I think that transition is just going to happen anyway um, from uh, towards, you know, more renewable sources of generation. Uh, the state is much more important in terms of uh, doling out subsidies and, um, you know, the private sector through R&D, just through, you know, the general functioning of the economy, which is now prioritizing more renewable energy sources. Uh, if Bitcoin is this $20 billion per, per year pressure uh, to find cheap energy, you know that's actually pretty small in comparison to the amount that's expended um, in you know, the regular old energy sector. Uh, so I don't think it's, it's really large enough to move the needle from a renewable perspective. Um, I do think that just as time goes on, and this might be a bit of a longer term trend, the cheapest forms of generation will be renewable. Uh, and so that's kind of a secular trend. If you look at any of the Lazard levelized cost of energy studies, you see that utility scale solar is now getting down to three cents per kilowatt hour. And offshore wind is getting down to kind of sub five cents per kilowatt hour. So because we still have all this you know, technological innovation to be found there and these efficiencies to be found, I do expect that renewables will just simply be cheaper and better than uh, thermal energy, where you know we've squeezed all the pips out of the lemon as far as coal 
or natural gas is concerned. And we're not going to get any cheaper uh, in terms of, you know, coal-powered energy. So I, I believe that that grid transition is, is going to occur. I'm also pro-nuclear, but there seems to be less uh, political support for that in this country, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a challenge. I think Bitcoin miners can abate it in a couple of ways. So they can, um, and they're also being incentivized to, I mean, capital markets in this country are increasingly politicized. Uh, it does tend to matter. Um, you know, you, you do, you know, increasingly need to take broader stakeholders into account, not just shareholders. Uh, and so Bitcoin miners have started to realize this, that they have an obligation that goes far beyond just their mere shareholders. Uh, and so, you know, what I've seen from especially U.S.-based Bitcoin miners is a pursuit of, uh, you know, renewable energy sources, uh, grids that are disproportionately renewable, uh, even a pur purchase of renew renewable energy credits uh, or offsets. Um, I'm seeing that from, a, you know, a few different miners and hosts. Um, and then just an effort to, you know, be more transparent about the type of energy being employed. Uh, so it's all pretty optimistic. And then the other good trend is that we're just going to see more hash rate onshore into the U.S. anyway and be more exposed to U.S. capital markets and, uh, you know, the, the demands that capital tends to carry these days. Uh, so more hash rate in the U.S., I think, is, is just generally better for Bitcoin's ecology. Well, I'm not going to break news on this podcast. We are looking, you know, we have about $600 million in Bitcoin, and we are looking very hard at purchasing credits um, uh, because we think this is, the ESG issue is a real issue. And, um, you know, you take the world as it is, not as you want it to be. And, and, and right. this is uh, something that Bitcoin will be, in my judgment, better off by taking seriously as I think. And look, people don't like Elon Musk. Elon Musk will have done Bitcoin a service. He has focused people's attention, those of us in the community on this, in a way that we would not have been. Eventually, we would have ended up the same place. But I think he's going to accelerate. Um, and you know, I'm not. I'm certainly not applauding his tactics. He was. He's been inelegant in how he's he's uh, conducted himself. But it, you know, if it has a good outcome, I'm I'm fine with it. I want to touch on something else. You, you hear a lot about well, Bitcoin can be used, you know, to balance the grid. And I want to press on that because it seems to me that, right, if I buy a mining rig and I'm only going to use it part time, how can that make sense when there's someone else who's going to buy a mining rig and find an energy source where they can use it 24-7, 365? So that argument feels to me like it sounds nice and it's sort of like get off our backs about the energy issue it doesn't feel like a real solution. Please tell me if I'm wrong, tell me how. Um, so maybe there's a little, just a little more uh, subtlety I can inject there. So um, it depends on the grid. That was a real like play by just saying, Brett, you don't get it, which is fine, which is why I'm so happy to have you here. So it just, it depends basically on the nature of the grid. Um, I agree. You definitely want to run your ASIC at, you know, 90% plus uptime because you're depreciating it over, you know, let's say three years and you don't want to have a significant period of time where it's economically not being employed for sure. Um, certain grids have these power reach purchase programs where at times of peak load, they basically pay, uh, you know, big consumers of energy to, uh, you know, stop consuming energy. Uh, the good thing about miners is that you can turn them off at short notice. 
which is very much unlike other industrial uh, con- you know, consumers of energy, let's say an aluminum smelter, uh, where you can't just turn it off at the drop of a hat. Uh, and so in, in the Texas grid, ERCOT, for instance, that's exactly what's in place. Most miners there will be active on these repurchase programs. Uh, and so during the time when their miners are idle at peak times where you know, the grid is trying to direct power to uh, you know, households so that they can run their air conditioning and, and, you know, at 6 p.m. on a hot summer's day or something like that, uh, those miners are actually still economically viable. It's just that they're being paid to turn off um, and, you know, miners are particularly suitable for that because they can spin up and down so quickly. So I would say in the case of formal repurchase programs existing, the grid stabilization claim does actually make sense to me. Uh, but that's not the case for all grids. You know, that has to definitely be in place, like an agreement like that. I was going to say, I think that's a pretty relative, if you looked across the United States, there aren't that many places where that the dynamic you described you know, is an, is an operation. Would, would you agree with that? I, I, this is where I'm reaching the limits of my expertise okay, okay, in okay, terms okay. of energy well, policy in this country. No, you've done great. Um, let's touch on El Salvador, uh, and I'll let Johnny ask you a few questions. We don't keep you. So big deal, little deal, no deal. I would say big deal because for the first time, this is an instance where we can call Bitcoin, you know, legal tender currency and money. You know, so a lot of economists always reject, uh, you know, uh, me or other Bitcoiners calling Bitcoin currency or money. They say, well, it has to be generally accepted as a medium of exchange in a specific jurisdiction. This Salvadoran law does that. Uh, And so while it is a small country, small GDP, not very important on the world stage, uh, you know, this you know, this is just crossing the Rubicon. Uh, It is, I would say, not to overstate the point, I would say it's as significant in Bitcoin's history as the time when Bitcoin initially monetized from being worth $0 to being worth 0.00 whatever dollars when that pizza transaction occurred. Uh, this is you know, incredibly significant in my view uh, because you know, it's been institutionalized uh, as a currency in at least one jurisdiction. That's, to me, that's really huge. Um, were you surprised that they didn't buy any Bitcoin for their reserves? Honestly, that's how I thought that the first sovereign level actor would engage with Bitcoin. And I thought that we would see it from the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund or the Norwegian one first. I thought it would be, you know, really technocratic, uh, you know, forward thinking, uh, you know, a relatively affluent state that would be the first to take the plunge and diversify their reserves. Uh, that was obviously not the case. I was pretty shocked that El Salvador chose to go for the legal tender law approach and encourage Bitcoin as this medium of exchange, which it's, you know, to be frank, it's really not that suited for, especially in a country like El Salvador. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't think that they would go this aggressively towards the medium of exchange. I think just buying some Bitcoin in your FX reserves is easier and makes more sense. Um, they may still do it. Who knows? I, I feel like the El Salvador story is not fully written yet. So I, I would say that, the only concern I have about what's going on in El Salvador, by the way, I agree, total big deal. So it was a bit of a setup question, is that somehow they screw it up. And, and so one of my, my question is, I think the remittance uh, market, which 
you know, in a prior life, I was actually deputy mayor of LA and remittances is obviously a big market in Los Angeles. And we did everything we could do locally uh, to sort of protect citizens, which was not a lot under, under city law. Uh, but I'm pretty current on the issues. Any rate, I think it's 22% of their G, you know, GDP. And so they're going to use the Lightning Network. And my understanding is, is that, and I'll describe it, I want to send 50 bucks to my friend in El Salvador. I'm going to, I'm going to basically go on to, I guess, strike. I'm going to convert my dollar to Bitcoin. I'm going to use a technical term. It's going to get zapped to El Salvador, right? And then if they want it in dollars, it'll get you know, another tra currency transaction, right, from Bitcoin to U.S. dollars. And that happens, right, in the span of less than a second. Is it ready for that? In other words, I, I saw that there's like something like $60 million of Bitcoin, I guess, you know, supporting the Lightning Network. Um, uh, is it ready for, for this, for such a thing? Yeah, Lightning may not be at a current state of maturity where it could stand the strain of an entire country's worth of remittances. I will say that Bitcoin as a bridge currency is definitely a use case we've seen. Um, so being that utility settlement layer between the endpoints in the remittance trade, there's certainly a number of startups that do it. There's a local Boston one called Liberty Pay that does the remittance channel from Massachusetts to Brazil. And they just settle up Bitcoin transactions between exchanges. Uh, and then the exchange is the nexus where you, you know, trade in and out of fiat currency. Uh, so Nick, you there are a variety. That. Can you just explain it from, from one user to another? How, 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 would, how would Liberty do it? Yeah, so actually, interest, and we're actually not investors, so I just find it fascinating. So from the perspective of the user, um, they're really not aware that the transaction is actually throughputting through Bitcoin at all. Uh, that's just the settlement rails. Uh, but, you know, they cash in at, um, you know, a supermarket or something. Um, and that gets converted into Bitcoin probably on a batched basis, batched end of day basis uh, at an exchange. Then the exchange settles up. Uh, they're probably even doing net settlement with the Brazilian counterpart exchange. And then at that exchange, it gets converted into uh, reals. Uh, and so, you know, there's relatively few hops involved. Uh, this was actually the original premise behind Ripple, really. But um, as it turns out, the market didn't really, you know, see a lot of value in, in Ripple as the bridge currency. And, you know, some of these remitters realized that they could ride on those Bitcoin settlement rails, especially if there's, uh, you know, local premium in Brazil, uh, you know, you can monetize that trade uh, in terms of the inflow. Uh, so, you know, that's definitely something that we've seen. Um, there's a number of exchanges you know, that are basically serving as de facto, uh, you know, like backbones for utility scale remittances. Uh, so you can sort of almost overlay remittances on top of the crypto exchange network, uh, which is one of the really interesting dynamics. But I agree as far as like settling each transaction individually through Lightning, I think that's probably pretty cumbersome right now. By the way, and I say that as a massive Elizabeth Stark fan, just want to put that out there. Um, last question before I go to John. ETF approval, March 31, 2022, over, under. What do you got? I'm still going to go uh, under. I'm still optimistic. I think the facts are on our side. I think Gensler will eventually see that. Um, you know, they're imposing a much, much more rigorous and much higher standard for a Bitcoin ETF than any other financial product ever 
any commodity ETF. I mean, they've got 4X inverse levered natural gas ETFs that truly decay to zero. That's allowed. Uh, but Bitcoin, one of the most liquid, you know, markets, broadly dispersed, uh, you know, globally traded with professional high quality index providers, uh, you know, to still believe that that's unworthy of uh, of an ETF is is beyond me. So I do expect that the SEC eventually sees the light. So you know we have a filing uh, before the SEC along with I don't know ten or more others. Uh, so I, I shouldn't say much about it, but I would say I agree, and I, I just think it, on a, it, 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 I guess I'm going to say just what you said. The case for it is much much stronger than the case against it. Full stop. And and, and to me. That wasn't the case several years ago, and I think that is the case now, and I think we get one when Gary decides we want one. At this point, I, you know, to be frank, I believe it's a political issue, um, and other asset classes have had ETFs at far less liquidity, far less mar- overall market cap. Uh, there are many commodities that are much smaller than Bitcoin um, and you know, more centralized in who owns them um, and you know, have less sophisticated market infrastructure. To me, Bitcoin has met all the criteria laid out in the prior ETF uh, disapprovals, whether it's uh, surveillance sharing agreements, whether it's qualified custodians, a material share of the markets being onshore, uh, the existence of you know exchanges that are regulated by the CFTC. Uh, to me, it's met all those criteria. Now it's just up to the SEC to see the light. I, I, I do think, though, that you, you raised... Um the, the real concern I have, which is politics. And, and I'm increasingly worried that Bitcoin's going to become a partisan issue where everything else in the world is mass where, um, if you think about the political uh, dynamic here, the Biden administration is not going to be able to deliver the progressive wish list, right? They're going to, he's going to deliver whatever Joe Manchin lets him. And I think he's going to try to play to the progressive wing on other issues. And so it worries me that Elizabeth Warren and Maxine Waters and Angelina, who I have not great history with, and I will never come around on Bitcoin, that he slow rolls it uh, because, you know, it, 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 it's a bone to throw to the left for a while. So I, I, I think you rightly point to that dynamic uh, because, again, just purely on the merits, it's, you know, we should be there by the fall. It troubles me that uh, it is so partisan. I tend to not believe that Bitcoin... Uh, should be partisan. It's a uh, apolitical, you know, monetary system. It's really neutral. Bitcoin doesn't care who you are, what you believe in, in terms of whether your transaction can settle validly. Um, but I think I can probably only name two um, Democratic representatives that are uh, have expressed a pro-Bitcoin sentiment, and uh, you know that'd be Rokana and, and Darren Soto. Uh, maybe I'm missing some others, but uh, it does seem to be increasingly politicized, which is. Uh, is perturbing and unfortunate. I think um, at the state level, um, you know, Bitcoin will have certain states that end up taking very favorable paths and some that don't. Uh, and so maybe that's kind of a saving grace is, is just the federal nature of the system. No, and I, and I think we as, as a, a Bitcoin community need to do a better job of making the case to the progressives because, you know, after Elizabeth Warren did her Bitcoin rant um, or cryptocurrency, uh, we have mutual friends and I, I had someone reach out to her and essentially say she spent her whole career focused on banks that repress underserved and underprivileged communities. How can she not understand um, that this is an escape from that? 
Um, but she's doing the bidding of Jamie Dimon when she attacks Bitcoin. I mean, it, it, it's really it, it's it's really that simple. By the way, we like Jamie Dimon. We want we'd love to have you come to Salt. Um, but uh, anyway, hey Nick, I'm going to let John ask a few questions. This has been fantastic. Um, uh, you know, go for, go for it, John. And speaking of Salt, uh, Ro Khanna will be speaking in September, so we're eager to amplify voices that look at things from a nonpartisan perspective, which I think Roe does on a number of issues, uh, including on Bitcoin and crypto. I'm gonna ask you about your, your two businesses that you're involved in, Nick. One, Coinmetrics, you, you co-founded Coinmetrics, fantastic resource for a number of different uh, sources of data, on-chain metrics uh, being one of them. In terms of the way you've looked at this sell-off and the way you look to identify potential turning points and just the way you evaluate rallies and, and pullbacks in Bitcoin, are there certain metrics that you're taking a look at right now that signal to you that you know, maybe we've reached a bottom or maybe we haven't reached a bottom? Uh, I know there's been some discussion about you know, liquidity, uh, change in liquidity from exchanges, off exchanges, maybe signaling that, that hodlers are accumulating Bitcoin again here at these lower prices. But how are you looking at on-chain metrics right now uh, during this pullback? Yeah, that's a great question. And the beauty is that uh, on-chain data has reached a level of sophistication and a variety of market participants too and uh, providers uh, that is really, you know, would have shocked me five years ago. I mean, I started Coinmetrics in 2016 when I was in business school and I wanted some verifiable data regarding uh, crypto assets and just, you know, what the on-chain economy was like. And I was completely fumbling in the dark. I really had no idea what was interesting, what was worth looking at. Uh, and, you know, it's incredibly immature. You know, fast forward to today, there's a number of different providers uh, and, you know, it's an enormously robust industry and then tens of thousands of people that look at on-chain data and trade against all day. Uh, so it's really astonishing to see how far the industry has come. Um, in terms of what I'm looking at, I would look at exchange balances, uh, but, you know, be careful with those samples because oftentimes the samples don't have all the exchanges in them. So if you're looking at exchange balances, oftentimes you'll be fooled about in and out flows you might actually just be looking at rotations between exchanges. Uh, so you have to be very wary uh, of the data quality issues in any of those data sets. Um, I'd be looking at uh, something like the ratio of market cap to realized capitalization. Realized cap uh, shows you the aggregate cost basis of all the holders. Uh, historically, that's been an oscillator that's been extremely good at picking tops and bottoms. It certainly uh, you know, was signaling top uh, in May. Um, I'd be looking at the um, share of coins that are currently active, uh, especially the six-month and one-year uh, cohorts. So what fraction of coins on Bitcoin have moved in the last six months, moved in the last year? Um, when you see that number cranking up, that kind of suggests that there's a lot of available liquidity uh, in the market. Uh, and we actually tend to see that in rallies, as the rallies pull liquidity off the sidelines out of long-term holders who then divest and exchange those coins to newer holders. Um, and then, you know, more specific, I'd look at um, the, the age profile of holders. So whether we're looking at short-term holders or long-term holders. And the beauty of this thing is that you can assess this, you can have this granular data, you can track every single unit of Bitcoin and what kind of holder owns it, what address size they are. Um, so that'd be the last thing I would also look at um, whether you know, smaller wallets are accumulating or divesting whether what larger wallets are doing as well. So probably not enough time to take you through all the charts, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the on-chain data uh, story is just such an a, you know, amazing and deep rabbit hole. 
the the charting episode will be our second episode of Salt Talks uh, with Nick Carter. Uh, but last question, Castle Island Ventures, you're wearing the great vest there. I think Patagonia now is refusing to put finance companies' logos on vests. Maybe Castle Island will be exempted from that. Um, but what type of venture investments are you most excited about in the Bitcoin ecosystem? You see market caps exploding or valuations exploding uh, across private investments, across a range of different crypto type companies. You know, you got to think there's some baby and there's some bathwater there. And, and what are the companies that you're most excited about? And what are maybe some areas you might not want to uh, discuss this part of it, but do you think might be getting a little frothy or ahead of themselves? Well, you know, the thing is with Patagonia is that they just don't know if you buy the vest and have a third party embroider it. So that's, I, I thought uh, there, were, there might be a loophole in that whole uh, <laughs> scenario, but, you know. Sort of. Yeah, it's it's not that difficult of a roadblock to route around. So that's my pro tip to any. It's like uh, you know, it's like peer to peer Bitcoin purchases in China. Exactly, exactly. Um, with the equally powerful adversary. So um, we just raised our second fund. We're actively deploying. Uh, selfishly, I think these the market sell off, sell off. You know, is is pretty great because it means that uh, the private valuations that were extremely frothy, because obviously the public markets trickle down into the private. Uh, those have come down a little bit. Uh, and, you know, frankly, during the bear markets, the best uh, companies tend to get funded because you get the you know, highest integrity founders, uh, folks that want to build in the crypto space, uh, you know, regardless of the valuations uh, and, you know, have extremely high conviction on the asset class. Uh, and so if we were to enter an extended period of sideways trading, God forbid, or, you know, along bear market, uh, that would be good for, uh, you know, the average quality of entrepreneur. Uh, and you know that's that's what that's what we're here to do. So uh, you know we're not complaining too much about the sell-off. In terms of what we're looking at, um, we've always been um, looking at seed and Series A stage financial infrastructure businesses in the Bitcoin and crypto space, whether that's exchanges, brokerages, lenders, asset managers, data providers, analytics, key management wallets, things like that. Basically, tools to take this asset class and make it mature, make it functional. Um, and you know, bring it to the next billion users. We're only at 100 million users worldwide. We think we can do a lot better. Uh, and so, one thing that we're you know specifically focused on right now is um, you know building sophisticated market infrastructure in X US jurisdictions. So whether that's uh, crypto dollarization in Latin America, whether that's broker retail brokerages uh, in Africa, retail brokerages in Southeast Asia. You know, that's where we're spending a lot of our time right now. I think the story of Bitcoin has increasingly been written outside the U.S. Uh, and it's a story of financial inclusion and giving people access to this apolitical settlement network. Uh, and, you know, there's some really key pieces of infrastructure that are needed to do that. Uh, and, you know, the, the U.S. exchange market is extremely saturated. You know, amazing levels of choice as a consumer. Uh, if you live in Nigeria or you live in Indonesia, uh, that's just not the case. Uh, and so we have a global mandate. So we're looking abroad to get those kind of jurisdictions to deploy this next fund. All right. Well, Nick, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, we hope you can join us at the SALT conference in September. You, know, you talked about how bear markets sort of reveal uh, you know, the, the real credible players in the space. We had our SALT conference in May of 2019 in Las Vegas. It was during sort of the tail end of a crypto winter. And there were still tons of, of really smart people and exciting companies that that came and that we featured at that conference um, that, were, that were iterating in the space despite the price of Bitcoin. So we 
we always like to say, uh, watch the news, not the noise. Adoption is is growing, is accelerating, uh, despite you know price fluctuations. But thanks for coming on. Uh, we hope to see you soon, Brett. You have a final word for Nick before we let him go. No, just you know, thank you, Nick. This was fantastic. Yeah, my my absolute pleasure, gentlemen. I'll definitely be there uh, in New York. All right, fantastic. We've been talking to your partner Tim over at CoinMetrics, and, and look forward to having you guys there. Uh, but thank you also, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Nick Carter. Uh, he has done so much for the Bitcoin community in terms of combating energy FUD, China FUD, all kinds of different FUD. Uh, he, he's the king of combating FUD, so we appreciate everything he's done. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks. We have an entire series of Salt Talks on digital assets uh, with most of the, the big voices in the space. So we definitely invite you to check that out. And please spread the word. Uh, talking about FUD, you know, we, we like sending around uh, these YouTube videos and podcast episodes to make sure that people are truly educated on the asset class uh, before they th- uh, start casting aspersions. Uh, but on behalf of Brett and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.